Hey everyone, this is Gans, and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast. My guest today is Jacob Heda, CEO of Acurex, a London-based company working on a platform that brings patients and healthcare teams together. Acurex started in 2016, raised a 9 million Series A from Atomico and Local Globe in 2019, and has grown tremendously since then. I had Jacob on an earlier episode of the podcast, but today's conversation is completely different. Jacob has a very deliberate approach to running Acurex, so this episode is absolutely packed with tactical advice on how to start, build, and run a company. We cover everything, the Acurex origin story and early days, how Jacob uses curiosity and first principles to solve problems, the importance of optimizing hiring for values and culture, why having an obsession with the end user is key for companies working on an industry such as healthcare, the Acurex product development process and how it evolved over time, and much, much more. I hope you learn as much as I did from this conversation. Hey, Jacob. Uh, it's great to have you again. How have you been? Good, thank you. Yeah, it's great great to be back. I really enjoyed our last conversation. Um, all as well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. And it's, it's, it's been an interesting time for you guys with COVID. Uh, and we'll, we'll get into that later. But sort of as a warm-up, I'd like to know more, like, what's the non-PR, like, non-BS story of how Acurex started? Let's talk early days, maybe starting with why you applied to entrepreneur first. Yeah, um, the non-PR story. So I've always been fascinated about healthcare, um, you know, debated going, you know, becoming a doctor, things like that, or training to be a doctor, but really wanted to have impact at scale and had worked in bits of the health system and seen how hard it was to, to make change happen. So I thought, you know, the great way to do that was going to be with, with tech. And that's where I met Lawrence. So he'd come from a background of software engineering, but in the oil and gas industry and really wanted to work on problems with real impact for people in their lives. So healthcare, you know, fitted very well into that. And the when we first met, we we thought we were going to build a business focused on antibiotic prescribing. We thought we were going to build a hardware business actually for the first week until we realized through talking to people that that was a terrible idea and was just going to be expensive and, and messy. But then we quickly moved to, well, can we, essentially the problem we got going after was uh, improving antibiotic prescribing. There's a, a huge problem facing society that uh, modern medicine depends on access to effective antibiotics for things like safe childbirth and cancer treatment and transplants. And they're becoming less and less effective uh, because in part because of inappropriate use and in part because we, you know, we haven't been able to, to, to develop new classes. So we spent the first 18 months just trying to work on a way to improve prescribing. And everyone told us that you know, there wasn't a market there, but I, I guess that's some of the belief you've got to have. Like even what we're doing now, people have told us there's no market. So um, we're, we're doing that. It's, it's, but it's well acknowledged to be this big externality, a bit like climate change the incentives aren't there and you need incentives because there's no like individual incentive to to um, prescribe more conservatively but the long the the long and short of it is after 18 months we just a couldn't get people to use our software and b we had no just our gut feeling was even if we built a perfect product it was going to be next to impossible to get people to pay for that just based on sort of the the cadence of conversations that, that we'd had with with healthcare system so that was sort of end of 2017 now at the same time we'd picked up some really interesting insights from building that product and from getting it in the hands of of in particular a gp practice uh, staff so the moment when they typed a message and hit send and it it ended up on their phone because they were testing out with their number and in their medical record system was like it was like witchcraft that we could do that in 2017 um so there's something there that you know we needed needed to explore more and you could just it was it was a feature we threw in on a whim when we we spoke to doctors and said you know if 
you don't think a patient needs an antibiotic, but they're insisting on one. How do you manage that? And they said, oh, you know, it's really important to give them something to leave with, like an advice leaflet. So we built a way to print a leaflet. Or, and as a whim, we th- on a whim, we threw in, oh, and you can, you can text advice to a patient. So that was one of the, the little sort of nuggets of insight we, we, we had when we pivoted. The other was... The other two really were one, can we make that routine? So we had this these depressing meetings every week about usage where we just couldn't get it to go up and we were trying to come up with all these different approaches. But we realized we needed to make something that wasn't something you had to remember to do, like flossing your teeth as the example we use, but it was something that is part of your routine, like brushing your teeth. And then the third was we were speaking to users that that had been using us and stopped using us. And when we spoke to them, it transpired that the reason they stopped using us is because they didn't see that those patients anymore with these infections because, let's say, the nurse or the paramedic in their practice now f- felt comfortable seeing these patients. And we, you know, taking a step back, realized actually there's a huge shortage of, of GPs. The GPs are very expensive. There's an opportunity here. So that, that's kind of what we had going into the pivot. Perfect. You mentioned you had this very, very depressing product meetings every week where you couldn't get the usage up. How did you keep uh, the team going? So that stage, we were, I think there were six of us. And what was exciting is that when we demo, and this is what we didn't really understand, when we demoed it to individual users, they loved it and they were like, this is great. And it types up all my notes for me and it's so slick. And and we couldn't then understand why they then those same people then just didn't use it. And so I think that was part of the motivation, as was the, the enthusiasm from users. But I'm trying to think how we kept everyone going. I, I mean, it was hard. Those meetings were depressing. I think we were just lucky in that everyone on that team was just really sort of committed to you know the hard work and the iterations that that, that took to, to to keep developing that but there was no there was no silver bullet there was no like oh there's this light at the end of the tunnel or or anything like that we just knew we had to get usage up if if, if the product was gonna take off i guess like i i don't like silver bullets either i think it's mostly something that enables the other small things to, to happen and i guess for you guys it was either the belief in the mission or as you said the commitment to iterations and, and hard work yeah so the, the like I, I i guess i didn't even think about it in hindsight but the whole team particularly at the early stage but then you know we've maintained it since as everyone's been incredibly aligned on and bought into the mission and the importance of it and so yeah reflecting that that was probably one of the big the big drivers through that period We'll dive into that, your values, your mission, your hiring in a bit. But before we do that, I want to cover something that sort of englobes everything that you do. And that is that you are very deliberate about how you do things. So from the outside, it looks like you look at a problem, you break it down, and then you put it back together from first principles. It's almost like the way it was done before is irrelevant. And what you care about is what is going on now. And there are a million examples, and uh, you've talked about how you design your office, for instance, for you guys and for your own team uh, from scratch. So I'm interested in where do you pick up that skill uh, or what's your mental model for making these decisions? It's a really interesting question because I've almost never thought of it that way. But when, yeah, when we get to a problem, maybe it's just that we're naturally sort of inquisitive and challenging and wondering you know what just because that's been done that way doesn't mean that that's that's the way we need to need to follow so we'll try and gather lots of data points of you know what have other companies have done try and work out or tease out what we're really trying to achieve or or um so you know the office is a really good example like when we were signing our office like what do we want to achieve we want people to you know, interact with each, have loads of casual interactions. We want people to have just a light-filled workspace and be happy. We want to have everyone on one floor so you're not having to, like, go looking for people. And um, we want to have space away from desks where you can, like, sit and eat food without looking at people working so you don't feel like, you know, you can't switch off. And all those little things, like, just, I guess, came quite naturally as, like, what's the workspace we'd want to work in? So... But a lot of it is, yeah, just taking a step back from from status quo. 
Is, is Lauren your, your co-founder as inquisitive as you are? And is that part of what you guys are as productive as you are? Yeah, Lawrence and I both care a lot of about sort of people operations and culture and, and being quite intentional about those decisions. And to be honest, that just really like, it's not, a, you know, can't take the credit and say it's just the two of us. It really like carries through the organization and we really back people, whatever their role or whatever they're working on to challenge the status quo, tease out what are the problems we're actually trying to solve and then come up with the right solution rather than just the the typical solution. You have this quote from John uh, Gall in your product handbook, which I think comes from Systemantics, uh, that you said a complex system that works is invariable found to have evolved for a simple system that, that worked. Is that, is that your map of the world? Like a bunch of systems just working together? I think it's our, it's our view of what we're trying to build where that's come from and why we believe in that and, and and all of our product principles is very specifically from stuff we've tried to do that hasn't worked so whenever we've tried to go and build something really complex which is like a hundred percent my inclination like my inclination is always like you know try and solve every edge case and build this like super over complicated solution i've been trying to like train myself off of that and luckily have a lot of challenge from the team to not do that but that's exactly why we've got principles around those things is because we've we've gone down one path realized it hadn't worked i'm curious uh what are the books where a big influence for you what other books do we like so i found both florence and myself have found um on people operations and hiring we found work rules really helpful lastly box book and and quite just practical in terms of you know how to interview properly and and and, and how to measure performance and, and things like that rather than just empty chat it gives some actual like practical learnings and also things that didn't work which i you know is really helpful to see and learn on a similar vein of you know being practical and you know densely packed with information i'd say the same about inspired by marty kagan really good insights on products what was quite interesting is like I've read that in the past year and actually a part of me would have loved to have read it a lot earlier, but, but I don't know if I would have being honest to myself paid as much attention, but actually reading it, having gone through lots of those experiences, you can really reflect and say, Oh yeah, that's what went wrong there. Or like, we've really learned that lesson. So I'd say that, that, that was quite helpful. I think in both those cases, I'd say those books are densely packed with lots of like, real experience and information rather than a lot of business books which is like one concept that could be summed up in 10 pages repeated over 200 because they've got to fill a book but those two i quite like because you know same as something like hard thing about hard things they're like densely packed with with information ah and culture code i think that's that's gonna be one of my favorites as well when we raised our series a and we realized we need to start, start growing the team quite quickly we read that and it really got us thinking around those three areas in, in the book. So how do you share vulnerability in the team? How do you create a sense of purpose? And how do you create belonging? And, and we hadn't thought about it in those terms, in those words, but really believe in that approach and, and the importance of those things. You have a strong preference for, for these types of, of books. I'm wondering, how do you select, consume and process information? my mind is very all over the place so like i'll read one little thing there and like often not finish a book or write some thoughts down on a bit of paper and then lose it but i've i'm not one of these sort of organized people who will be like i need to learn about x go away and like read these things make some notes and then come back and be like right here's what i've learned it's much more just like picking up things along the way and asking questions get a lot of really value to, uh, talking to other founders and um, particularly those who are like in the sort of six to 12 months further ahead because they're like they're still relatable they're not in the like you know five years ahead expanding to other countries but they're far enough ahead that they've they might have made a mistake we're about to make or something like that perfect let's switch gears a bit and, and go back to this deliberate thinking i was mentioning in the beginning one of the the areas that i i think you, you guys see the great job at is your values. Uh, you have five values and each one is highly actionable and embedded in your processes. 
how do you come up with those? And how do you make sure that there is something that the team uses as a decision-making mechanism every day? In summer 2018, we had our team away week. And we just, it felt like the very beginning of product market fits. In February, we launched this patient messaging product. It was self-service and it was starting to really take off. I think it, when we went on that retreat, we had about 230 GP practices, which, you know, we, we had a nice graph that was that was going up and to the right. So we, we had, you know, rave feedback and things like that. So it felt like something was going right. We were all enjoying working together, working on the problem. So we asked everyone, why do you enjoy working here? Um, and why do you think we work well together? And we had this dining table of the place we were staying just filled with post-it notes. We got everyone to group them. Initially into it was about 15 groups and then took those away from the session and, and tried to play on like different different groupings, iterated a bit and ultimately got down to to five, which... I think it's really the maximum you can go for any more than five. And it's like, you, they just become, you know, if you value everything, you kind of value nothing. So we got, got down to five, um, being mission driven, collaborative, continuous improvement, people taking ownership, so responsible ownership and balance. And those, those were like the themes of, of, of what people put down. And previously we'd been very, skeptical about you know values because you go to i don't know one of the big accounting firms and they've got meeting rooms named after the values like integrity and innovation and it's like i mean they haven't innovated their business model in 100 years how is that a value so we're like very skeptical so we try to really really ground it in things we actually do rather than things we aspire to do and then in terms of how we've embedded those i think the most important by far is hiring for those because like if you can get people in who line up with those everything else is a load easier and you can like you know you have to tweak processes but it naturally comes you're naturally talking to people who will always strive to improve things or will take really strong ownership and be responsible or who believe in our mission and so it was January 2019 when we just raised our series a and we were eight people at the time but knew we were going to need to grow the team quite quickly and, and and therefore put a lot of you know interview a lot of candidates essentially that we said right we need to make sure what we've got now that's really working we can scale and replicate that and so we came up with some initial questions based on those values uh, did a quarterly like a way day which we we can't do anymore because of size and lockdown but we used to do at gp practices and we interviewed each other with those questions so um we just had an experiment of all right let's let's try try them out which like i guess a lot of people don't do but if you can't ask us you know each other in the team that question where there's a lot of trust then how, how on earth can you ask a candidate those questions so did that have been iterating on those ever since really and then it's really important to us that anyone in the business should be able to do a values interview not necessarily immediately like they need to you know settle in understand understand our culture understand our values be part of other value into values interviews with people where we've been working on it a lot recently is is not actually on the questions but on a lot of more like training for new people doing values interviews or basically information on like what does good look like and how to really like pro probe on those so that, that's the biggest way other things we've done that really drive those is we've tried to point to them at things like when we do performance reviews we'll we'll base it around those those five areas of the values when we have kudos at the end of the week and people can submit kudos for other people on the team we ask them like you know what value did that really showcase um, so there's like little things we've tried to to feed it in, but the biggest by far has been in hiring. Other than the questions, um, what sort of processes have you put in place um, to make sure that you optimize for those values when hiring? Last time we chatted, we, we discussed two things. We discussed diversity, and then we discussed consensus and decision-making. But this is sort of a third element that we haven't covered. So how what sort of processes did you put in place for that? Do you mean do you mean just hiring in general? What processes do we have? 
Yeah, so you mentioned that the main reason why you're able to embed this processes into your daily life is, is hiring and getting the yeah. right people in. So how do you make sure to optimize for that as you hire? So partly we we won't compromise on, on values. We won't have the, I think it's some people call it like a brilliant jerk problem where you have someone who's like, you know, amazing, at, you know, technically at their role, but nobody wants to work with or, you know, is, is incredibly like uncollaborative. So like, that's just really toxic for for the team for the culture so we you know won't ever compromise on those those value questions we won't rush that part of the interview or skip it if we're really excited about a candidate or if we know them from before we'll you know really really prioritize that i'd say that's you know that that's probably the you know one of the main things the other that's been quite you know we haven't been able to do during lockdown but in normal times we you know as part of the final stage candidates have lunch with the team and it's not like an assessed part of the day but it does really just give a candidate a chance to know what you know how we work and and, and get to meet more people and then also as part of that product process we'll you know give a demo of our product which actually goes quite in depth it's like 45 minutes one-on-one Loads of candidates are really surprised by, I think, because they've gone to other interviews where they don't have any sort of product demo. And I guess for lots of consumer products, you don't necessarily need that. But for us, it's really important to actually show not just what we're working on, but how we how we think about things and, and some of the things we've tried in the past. One of your values is this Japanese concept, uh, Kaizen, which is continuous improvement. How did this came to be? So when we were looking at our values um, in that area, I think there were lots of examples people gave around different areas of improvement. So some were more personal, like, you know, we work well because we've got a good attitude towards like learning new skills and, and, and figuring things out and supporting each other to do that. And some were more team-based. So we really have an environment of trying to always improve our processes and how we work together and, and and things like that. And so there was the more like organizational Kaizen. There again, it was just us trying to codify things that help us work well work well together. That's that's an instance of importing a concept into Acurex. And this might be sort of a weird question, but if you had to export an Acurex concept or or yeah, concepts uh, into the world. What would that be? Oh, if we had to export a concept, um, I don't think you know we're in we're in any way um, unique in doing this. But I'd, I'd say some of the things that we really go, you know, uh, not even over and above, but we just put an incredible amount of effort into very consciously would be for example the extent to which we talk to our users which particularly i think in some b2b products is lost because they talk you know talk to sales uh being people responsible for procurement rather than end users but we will go out and spend the day in a practice shadowing. We will invite our users to the office for drinks in the evening. We will, you know, during lockdown, we've been doing whole team calls with a user on where we interview them. We do like everything we can to learn and understand. Everyone in our team does um, a, a slot on support every month, three hours on support every month. So that they're talking to our users and, you know, lots of people in, in, in different roles will talk you talk more to users or visit practice more but at a minimum everyone needs to visit practice um once a quarter so or twice including including the offsite so i'd say that's something that we've really really embedded as as a strong part of like our, our product culture and then there's yeah there are other things that i imagine like lots of you know i've, I've heard of, of teams doing but they aren't necessarily the norm but like for us it's really important to sit and have lunch together and even cook lunch together and, and, and those sorts of things are just a, a really integral part of our part of our culture. Why do you think that obsession with the end user is as important in an industry as healthcare? So I think one, one of the problems with health tech and, and why loads of products just don't work and, and why a lot of 
you know, healthcare is generally considered to be quite backwards when it comes to IT, is that you've got technologists who really understand what's possible with technology, but don't understand user needs. And we've been in that position before. You know, when we started out, we didn't understand, even all the way up until when we pivoted and, and, and spent three or four months living in one practice, we didn't understand what a lot of these needs were. And then on the flip side, you've got all these staff on the front line who they see and understand all the problems. Okay, sometimes they get like acclimatized to them and they, they stop noticing them, but they, they see them, but they don't know what's possible with technology and their, their baseline expectations are so low because of um, a lot of tech they've, they've used in the past. So I think that's partly, partly why it's so important. The other reason it's just been really ingrained, which I yeah, forgot to mention higher up, is when we pivoted, we weren't really sure what to build. We, we knew there were all these different inefficiencies and unmet needs, and we were going after one thing, which was shifting workload from doctors to other stuff, but really we just needed to learn. And, and we spent four months just solidly in one GP practice, shadowing appointments, shadowing phone calls, building all these prototypes. Most of them were like, just on Excel sheets or post-it notes, like really hacky, unscalable prototypes. But we just learned every day we were there, we had this like fire hose of learnings and informations that we, on the drive back from this practice in Oxford, it was like an hour and a half, I was drive, like someone would be in the car on Slack, like slamming in all, you know, 50 bullet points we'd learned that day for the rest of the team. So I think that's, that's part of what's, what's really ingrained it as well. So how on earth did you essentially get a GP practice to take in a bunch of people just working in there every day? Well, we were fortunate in that we built this product for antibiotic prescribing and we had that in about, I think it was 19 GP practices. And so when we pivoted, we looked at which of those practices, you know, had we built a good relationship in where um, we'd want to work closely with them and, and, and where they'd want to work more closely with us and saw opportunity and the things we were talking about like you know back then it wasn't just communication which is obviously what we're focused on now back then it was everything from managing appointments to like knowledge management in the practice to collecting data from patients and automating a load of admin it was a whole host of things they were just really excited at improving all those things and so it's we sort of built the relationship from that and we we had to build it build it over time so you know we got in there we did some like very small little projects just to like increase trust and buy-in and, and and work together with them and then we could you know work on bigger and bigger things i guess that that only works if you have the time to to build that relationship most venture capital back startups don't i guess and my question or where I want to get into is you were very deliberate about raising money. So you were a small team, you got some some grants and then you went straight into a, a Series A. How do you think about that process? So we had to take that approach and take that time to understand our users because we wouldn't have been able to raise you know, more money if we didn't if we didn't do that. And we had to do that to essentially to to get to product market fit, to, to work out what, what our business was. After essentially two fundraisers out of both of them, our learning has been fundraising makes you incredibly confident in complete assumptions because these assumptions that you have, you write them on a whiteboard a hundred times to different investors and maybe you put them in slides and you answer quest, really probing questions on them. You become so defensive about them that they become true in your mind. And we had exactly that with antibiotic prescribing and that like, we had that and then someone goes and puts money in it so you're like well this must be true we must be taking the right approach but if we've learned anything from both our last two fundraisers it's it's like well you know once that's all closed like tear up those assumptions or at least you know hold them for what they are which is assumptions and and really challenge them and and what's more i think investors almost like expect that but they don't say that because when you go to them and say well actually everything we were doing like worked out differently and it wasn't you know we actually this roadmap was completely wrong when you take this approach they're used to it and they've seen it loads of times before but you know as a company you think right we've we've solved this one this one vision that's what we need to 
it's really focused on. I remember when we were, when we pivoted, worrying about what the team would think, you know, after having putting, you know, all these months working, but also worrying what our, what our investors would think. And when we told them, they were like, "Oh yeah, no, this sounds much more sensible than than continuing to um, go down that that route where, where we weren't having any progress." So, in terms of our Series A fundraise. We were like looking to fundraise for quite a while. We were looking to fundraise from April of 2018. So it, it basically took 10 months from looking, starting to look to fundraise to actually, you know, closing, closing the rounds. And we spoke to a lot of seed investors and they were really averse to the healthcare space, particularly, you know, the healthcare space selling to the NHS and health systems rather than like consumer healthcare. They're just, there aren't, good precedents here there are some in the u.s but still just you know disproportionately few for the for the the size that healthcare makes up in the economy there weren't good precedents we were just very lucky that there were a couple of series a investors who'd been looking at this space for a while and were you know had spoken to our competition and were were ready to to place bets there and that that's what really helped accelerate things in in that process and and as we what what was great is that that 10 months of fundraising as we were going through that every time we spoke to investors we had you know three percent of gp practices using us and then it was six percent and then it was 10 and then it was 15 and we could show this continuous progress while fundraising and and that obviously really really helps and but also kept making our ambitions bigger so when we started when we pivoted when we started fundraising we were very focused on primary care and general practice by the time we closed our fundraise our ambitions had grown to the whole healthcare system and and communication across all of it really we're very lucky we had those two grants because it gave us the time to for that to play out and the way the grants were structured we, we got paid essentially every quarter after you know in arrears and and then you know two months after so every three months our bank balance would dip incredibly low and then it would go shoot up again and then dip low again and go up and it was you know gradually going down in this sort of wavy shape but those grants did really help us get to the point where we could actually raise raise external investment I'm sure that was an exciting roller coaster. <laughs> so the fundraising process for you was 10 months. And usually fundraising is extremely distracting for a CEO. How did you keep running the company during those months? What sort of frameworks did you put in place to make sure that you measured the return on your time? I wish I was organized enough to say we had some sort of grand plan and frameworks, but it wasn't the case. I mean, really, what was good about that fundraise is it forced us to a you know really drive progress we had this burning platform that you know as a, as a team everyone was really united behind making progress on but it also forced us to work out like actually what is our business what is our mission what's the problem we're trying to solve where we had to tell a story and i remember speaking to matt wachowski who was at ef at the, at the time he's now um Fly Ventures, Talk, talking to him and, and, and Tim saying, you know, we're talking through our we need to start fundraising. And he was like, you have no vision. And he was completely right. We were just like had this list of 101 different problems in healthcare that we wanted to try and solve with no vision. But it was actually that process of needing to tell a story helped us develop that vision and prioritize it and, and everything like that. So in lots of ways, it yes, we were spending time on that, but it wasn't just benefiting fundraising. It was also helping us decide what we prioritize and what we focus on. And then also just have like a very switched on team. So, you know, things could keep moving forward whilst we were still still talking to investors. I'm going to pull us back from the fundraising rabbit hole and get us back into product because I think there's a lot more uh, that we could cover. Why don't you start by sort of unpacking uh, your product development process? How does your product team work? And then we'll go from there. Yep. So actually, loads of, that, loads of that's changed recently. To go back a bit, we didn't have any product managers in the team until, I think, September last year. So you know, at that point, we were in... 10% of practices in the country. We'd No, more than that, sorry. My years are getting confused. We're in a good, yeah, good good chunk of the country. And, you know, our first product manager did, you know, 
didn't even come from a product management background before, but you know had a real you know talent for for the skills we, the skills we were looking for in that. But but what that's meant in the team is that we have a culture where everyone wears a bit of that hat. Like an engineer can't just write some code and then you know when it doesn't meet the needs or some edge case doesn't work, say, oh, you know, that wasn't in the spec, that wasn't in the acceptance criteria. Our clinical leads in the team are really embedded in talking to our users and making decisions there. Our support team, when they talk to users, will ask, you know, if a user has a feature request, we'll ask some questions to kind of probe and, and understand. And so product is like partly every everyone's job. I'd say the big, there's there's probably about, there's, there's like five or six different like product epiphanies that I can that I can think of that we've had along the way. So, first one September 2016, right at the beginning, we were building this. You know, the first version of our product it was just Lawrence and myself, and we didn't really have any idea what we were building. And we went to a workshop on like essentially user centered design. Um, it's this exercise which we've since some of the team on on designing a wallet and realized that we needed to completely change how we're doing product lined up a weekly day with users and then we just build all week for that day which is essentially one week sprint um so that was like our, our first epiphany i'd say the second one was was when we pivoted just going and spending that time with users and building very unscalable products intentionally to learn then we had a big learning around scalability and the fact that we needed to build something that was that was truly self self-service I'd say all the way along we've had, there has been no epiphany, but just a continuous learning that we should, you know, be working on fewer things at a time, discontinue things if they're not working rather than leaving them in a limbo state of, of hanging on. And then towards the end of last year, we were trying to get two product teams working in parallel. And we, we told the team all these stories of how we did these scrappy things in the early days. And we were a bit, we were basically quite worried because if you were one of our sort of the majority of our users, not in you know pilot practice testing more innovative features, you hadn't really seen our product improve over the past year. It's like, yeah, it's got more reliable and it got faster and our security had improved. Maybe the onboarding flow had improved a bit, but you didn't notice that. And so we had a real, we got the team together and had a real moment of, look, we're going to need to move things faster. We're going to move from doing these two weekly sprints that start on a, thursday and finish on a wednesday to like monday to friday weekly sprints we're going to have six week goals we're going to have a planning week now each team's going to present their goals at the end of that every week we'll have a show and tell where each team can present when they're up to so like really putting like a lot more sort of essentially like pressure on accountability part part of the problem was raising a big series a rounds for for i think when we signed a term sheet it gave us like 20 years of runway or something like that we, there wasn't this burning platform, so we had to find other ways to to create that. So we we started doing these cycles. We were really worried about how it's going to land. So we also, you know, rolled out at the same time weekly surveys to check if people, you know, knew what they were doing, but also felt like it contributed to the goals and felt supported in achieving them. Um, and started providing lunch every day to everyone because we, you know, we were saying, look, we're asking a lot, but you know, we want to support that. And really, it just went down really well. Like everyone really really enjoyed that so that now that sort of defines how we develop products in these like six week cycles we used to do plan for a quarter but by by like week four or five your plans gone out the window anyway because you've learned so much so six weeks was like the most we could plan for most recently as in literally the last two weeks um we've been making a couple of big changes so one is developing you know planning more around six month visions which we didn't have before we just had sort of like a very long-term vision like five to ten years and then like what we need to do in the next six weeks so we're filling in the middle and then the other part we've been doing recently is really trying to empower product managers to not just you know what we did sort of the past six months was say here's your objective for the next six weeks you know go and come up with a plan and present it back to saying here's an objective for the next six months. Here's a company goal for the next six months. What do you think your objective should be for the next six weeks and six weeks after that? And then come up with a plan. So really trying to move towards giving them a lot more autonomy. And, and all of that is so that we can get into a place where we can spin up more product teams in parallel, as well as just you know really getting the, the, the best out of, of, of everyone in our team. 
So, you know, them having a lot more ownership and autonomy as teams, not just the product managers, but, but, but the teams themselves. So that's a bit of the journey where we're going on at the moment. But like every time we think we've kind of figured it out, then something falls apart and like you've got to like mend it. And the other problem is you read all these frameworks online about you know, squads and guilds or about how to structure teams and all this stuff. And it's all based on like this perfect world where like you have like N teams and you have N designers and N product managers and like two N front end engineers and two N back end engineers. And the world never works like that because you hire people one, one person at a time. And like at the moment we've got one designer in our team and in January, before January we had zero designers in our team. So like Matt, our designer has to like support design across all these teams. So all these like models and frameworks just fall apart in, in, in the real world you often find, but like you can tease out sort of the important stuff out of them, like, teams having good autonomy around achieving their goals and, and things like that. You have these three layers of abstraction, six weeks, six months, and six years or five, 10 years. Why do you think yep. having all three is important? And, and why did you include that, that third one that was lacking yep. before? Yeah, so the third one's quite new. Why is it important? So I think we've got to have the long-term vision because that's what really... You know, that's what people join us for. That's what Lawrence and I, why, why we started this and, and what, what we really care about, what, you know, the, the vision we're selling to our investors and where we really want the company to go. That's not usable on a day-to-day -day basis. Like we need uh, a map of like what we're actually going to do in the next six weeks and to be really aligned on that so there aren't surprises. And we thought, I thought we were working that thing, not that. And it forces us to prioritize as well and say, right, in the next six weeks, would we rather get X done or Y done? Like, yeah, we'd love to get both of them done. But if we could only get one done, is it X or Y? So that's where six-week plans have been really important. Also, it lets us celebrate like a, sort of a year ago, even eight months ago, we weren't very good at celebrating as a team. We were just kind of head down, crack on. Oh, cool. Yeah, that happened. We're in loads more practices. Great. Let's crack on. Like we, we just, I don't know why it wasn't part of our DNA. And so we've had to put a lot more effort into that. And, and doing those six week cycles has helped a, a lot with that and helped with creating some artificial deadlines when we don't have real deadlines. You know, by the end of the cycle, we want to get these, these things done. And by the end of the week, we want to get these things done because there's a weekly release train then the six months where did that come from well that that's the in-between so that's really come from like what are the strategic bets we want to make that are bigger than six weeks that are going to take time to play out that we think will get us towards our, our vision towards our say six-year goals and give the team more autonomy because the problem with planning for six weeks is you plan for six weeks and then by week five of the six weeks like you've only got a week's plan left and then people are like cool, like what's going to happen next like and we got to a point where you know Lawrence and I would end up having a lot of those discussions because that's just a lot of what we talk about and what we enjoy talking about them but like selfishly like we it was just us having them and nobody else was part of them and we try and be really transparent but it wasn't intentional we we're excluding people from them but it was just like a whatsapp conversation we we're having in the evening about what we could be doing in six months and just actually writing that down where we where we think we want to be has really helped just align people around direction and, and the reality is we are moving from a as we grow we are sacrificing some agility we can't we won't be able to respond to new information as fast we won't be able to jump on things as fast and so we need a bit of a like midterm plan one of the other things that you're very intentional about is your culture I'm very curious how it started and then how it developed over time to where we are right now. So how it started is, um, I'd say Lawrence and I had both worked in places where probably to different extents, we weren't you know, as happy with, with the culture. And there were, there were just lots of little things, or in some cases, big things that you know we could see being done better in a company. And that's everything from transparency to like how different people in the team are included to how people in the team are onboarded and so that's where it started really our our culture so so much of it just stems from what we did in the early days like it's so easy to shape and impact things when you're 
five people and you're six, seven, eight people. And it, it gets, you know, exponentially harder as you grow. And so we actually started doing a lot of th things. I remember when we started doing town halls when we were 10 people and it felt really weird because we all sat around a table together and we had lunch together and we were doing these weekly updates. But like, we knew that we had to start doing them then so that as we grew, they were part of the, the, the routine and the rhythm. And funnily enough, when we spoke to people, when we were 10 people, and I just assumed that everyone knew what was going on, people were like, I oh, know, it's actually really helpful. I didn't know what this, this stuff was happening. But, you know, lots of the things that came from the beginnings of our culture is, you know, when we were three of us, we would once a week go out to like a local cheap eat restaurant and have lunch together. And so we just continued doing that as we grew and, you know, made sure when we fitted out the office that there was a table we could all fit on together or when we were sort of a year old as a company and about six people, we were like, Oh, it'd be nice to go to the Brecon beacons in the countryside for a few days together and like get away from the office. And like, and I think we, yeah, we, we wanted to do the weekend as well. We were worried about people's partners, like so being like, you know, why, why, um, why is my partner away? So we're like, okay, bring your partners to and, and, and so like that's now part of our culture. And then a year after, a couple of our team has had kids. So we were like, yeah, bring your team, bring your kids too. And so now we're on our summer retreat, we, you know, it's a week long now. And for the weekend, we invite people's, people's families. Um, and there are loads and loads and loads of little examples like that where just the things we did when we were small stuck. And it's really easy to look at them and say they don't scale. Going away for a week as a team and not just going away for a week, but like we don't want to be in some you know hotel where we're just in conference suites and, and cook for. We want to cook together as a team and do activities as a team. Um, it's really easy to say that stuff doesn't scale, um, but there's usually a way to scale it. Um, Lawrence and I are quite um, insistent that, yeah, this doesn't scale is not a reason to stop doing something. Like it's got to like really, really break before... We, we, we stopped doing it and, and even then you can normally like tease out the essence of what we're trying to do and, and, and package it into something slightly different and when we first started hiring we had no idea how to interview and we like we were just like okay well why didn't you come and work for a day with us and we'll work together on something you get a feel of how we work because you're taking as, as big a risk on us and like that will we'll do that instead of an interview and like that's evolved to Okay, the final stage now is like a half-day interview, which includes lunch with the team, which, and you know, doing a task and having a product demo, which all came from like spending a day with us. So I'd say that's yeah, a lot of lot of cultures come from you know what naturally happened when we were small. When we hit fifteen people, we we said to the team, Lawrence and myself said, the culture is now out of our hands. It is like for all of you to like be custodians of and nurture. We used to say like how do we maintain our culture as we grow but we don't because we know it will change but like how do we nurture it and that's where you know luckily hiring people who fit with our values and who've been part of all those different cultural experiences has, has really helped us maintain those the big challenge is how to do that when a lot of people are joining quite rapidly so beginning of the year we were 21 people and now we're 47 people six months later so like how do we especially when loads of those people haven't even met in person because of because of lockdown, how do we instill a lot of those cultural challenges? That that you know is is really tough, and certainly something that we've said to the team, we've said to our investors, like we'll put the brakes on hiring if that if that starts to falter, if you know um, people when they join don't feel really welcome or don't know what's going on. But the, my sort of nightmare scenario is someone joins, they sit at their desk, and they turn to the person on their left who started three weeks ago and ask you know how something works and they don't know they put turns to the person on their right who started five weeks ago and asked how something works and they don't know and then like you lose any sort of organizational memory around the things that, that that really make us work so when someone joins you really try and make sure that you know they've got a buddy and on their first day the whole there's a breakfast with the whole team to welcome them and they can join even when we're remote we do a, a zoom breakfast with with a smaller group of people just so that we can as quick as possible, get them up to speed. You know, we do a session of talking through how we got here and like some of the, the stories and lessons we've learned and, and things like that. All really important part of people, getting people up to speed quickly. But if there's one thing we know, it's that like it will fall over again when we get to a certain size and we'll have to rebuild it and, and, and put new things in place. Well, 
if you double in size every year, then every year you don't know half your colleagues and 50% of the companies is new. So this organizational memory that you were referring to usually gets lost. And, and part of that is the onboarding, right? You're, you're very intentional about the onboarding as well. Yeah, we try and make sure that people can really leave, ideally on their first day, but definitely in their, at the end of their first week, feeling like they have done productive work and not just like they've come in and sat through slides or you know they can really get stuck in so that that's part of it uh part of it is just you know we, we invite people joining to a lot of stuff before they join so they can come to show and tells on fridays and they come to team socials and, and things like that so it's it's less of a jump from zero to one but it's you know they, they're gradually dipping their toes in before but there's lots more i think we can do to you know to, to keep on improving on boarding especially as you know, there's we, we forget because we're in it every day, but the organization is just 10 times more complex than it was a year ago. So if you join now, there's more complexity in the product to understand. There's more complexity in our OKRs or in the different teams in the organization or how different AV works in the office or what SaaS systems we use or what security requirements we need people to to follow and things like that. Like everything is just that much more complex and that's only going to like keep continuing as we grow so we're going to have to work out how do we like make that sort of more more consumable i, I went through your product handbook which is is fascinating and i'm sure it's it gets outdated pretty quickly but one of the things that you mentioned is you, you don't build features that other companies already provide even when you can do them better and that's a very unique product decision because matching features is usually a way to compete why so there is so much to solve in healthcare. The way I describe it is like you walk into a GP practice or a hospital, wherever you go, and you're like tripping over inefficiency. Not because anyone's like maliciously designed things, but just all these processes have organically evolved and people have more important things to worry about. No one has any headspace to improve processes because they're trying to keep the service running and firefight or they're moving, you know, doctors constantly rotating between jobs and things like that. You got all this inefficiency so why on earth would we go and like build something that's already been solved and make it 10 or 20% better when there's this green space over here that nobody's touched where we can let people do something they couldn't do before? And that's one thing we you know, really try and design around is like, what can we, with anything we build, like, what does it let someone do that they couldn't do before? Not how does it let them do it 10 or 20% better, but what, what's just fundamentally new? Now, we've actually had to nuance that recently because there's, when, when we say, you know, not do things that other companies have done, uh, even if we can do it better, the, the, the definition of better, sometimes like if what's out there is just so, just really doesn't meet user needs, then we've actually gone. So recently, an example is video consultations. There were a, a bunch of companies providing video consultations they were just too clunky to use. And so like, there's a pandemic coming. People don't want people bringing infections into the surgery. We just needed to get out a, a better way to do it. And we did that. And you know, that actually was, was very successful. So we've nuanced that slightly. But even now, it's still part of the prioritization. When we're looking at what features we build, you know, can we, let's really focus on our met needs. Where it's going to get more nuanced and, and, and challenged is over the next few months, we're going to start selling our software and generating revenue. So pre previously we were, we were pre-revenue and there will be, you know, there already come up examples where we do need to provide some sort of feature parity to be able to, to compete with other products. But really a lot of what we're doing is we're trying to create new products and define new categories. So, so we have, we've tried to try to avoid that. You get into a very like zero, zero sum game where everyone's just working on the same building different iterations of the same thing yeah i'm curious you mentioned covid and the pandemic how did covid affect your roadmap i think the best way to describe it is it just compressed it there are there weren't really things on there that we weren't planning on building possibly video i think maybe we just wouldn't have done for a while and that that really you know quite expedited but most of the other things we're doing 
um, or that we've done during COVID were things that we would have, you know, liked to have done over, let's say, the year, but got done over three months. So make it easy for patients to respond or send in images or making it easy to communicate with the hospital or even us launching in hospitals and send documents to patients. Those are all things we, you know, were working on. We'd, some of them we had designs for, some of them we'd like built an early version of um, and COVID just accelerated. And taking a step back from accurate, I think that's a lot of what's happened in the pandemic isn't COVID specific in terms of user needs. It's just the everyday needs in the health system have become more acute um, because resources have been constrained and because, you know, one of the, the, the main fallback for communication, which is the person, you know, the patient comes in and repeats the thing that they told someone else couldn't happen anymore because the patient can't come in or patient comes in and picks up a bit of paper can't happen anymore. So all these like existing sort of latent user needs just got exacerbated and, and that allowed us to really accelerate things. What about internal communication? So uh, your, or the way you describe your main insight is that healthcare is a communication industry. Um, I'm wondering how the team that is making healthcare a communication industry does communication and how that affected uh, or how that was affected with uh, the pandemic and going remote. So, yeah, it's a really good question and important for us to keep <laughs> challenging ourselves on that. When we did that shift last November, so, you know, a bit before the pandemic to these six-week cycles, one of the things we did as a, an experiment was we turned off Slack for two weeks. In fact, we originally we turned it off for a week and then people actually really liked it, so we kept it off for another week. Trying to just get people to go and talk to people more and have less clutter on Slack and all these different things. And at the end of it, it was about half the team absolutely loved it. I'm like, please keep it off. And about half the team hated it. I'm like, I can't get my work done. Please put it back on. And that was while we were, you know, all in the office. So partly what it just showed us is the way people perceive communication products is, is very different. I think the big learning for us was most communication products have measured their success through usage but if what we're ultimately trying to achieve is you know great communication and, and, and productivity then people would use us less and that's a really that then opens this really hard question of like how do we measure the products we build so i'm i'm digressing from the question how we internally how we communicate internally so we probably we use a lot of the things that most teams will use slack and calendar and hangouts and, and all this stuff and zoom we once a week have a uh, town hall as a team where we'll you know put any announcements around offers we've made and what's happening next week and what's keeping Lawrence and myself up at night and any kudos from the week and things we need help with. So we do that once a week. And sometimes that would just be like, here's a thing that we don't know the answer for, but we're thinking about it and we'll let you know if we work it out. And if you've got ideas, please let us know. Just so that people know that like we are actually thinking know thinking about it so examples like i don't know people asking us what our policy is going to be on holiday after covid or even the plan on coming back to the office after covid and we're just like we don't know but like we're telling you we don't know is there's not some plan going on that like we haven't told you about because that's what really like worries people or you know creates um, misinformation or politics or whatever so we do that weekly you know teams have stand up to stand ups daily We've really got quite like in-person communication culture. So being remote has been very challenging for that. We've tried to do like end of the day wins calls or end of the day coffee breaks. We've you know, tried to keep doing our team lunch once a week, but it's hard. Like, you know, if you've been in back to back Zoom meetings, the last thing you want to do is get on another Zoom meeting while you have lunch. So yeah, that, that's, that's uh, been a challenge, being honest. What are the other big problems or coordination problems you think are really communication problems? Do you mean outside of healthcare? Yes. Just in general, I guess. So being honest, I don't know because I don't know enough about other sectors. Like the only reason we can say healthcare is a communication industry is because we went and spent, you know, five months sitting on the phones and GP practice reception understanding them and, and why we think it's a communication industry 
and why I wouldn't necessarily think like logistics is, but maybe I'm wrong, is because healthcare is really messy. So when you go and talk to people about what they're doing each day and the decisions they're making, it's like, you know, a patient got this prescription, but the pharmacy's out of stocks. They need a new prescription issued for double the quantity, but a half the dose because they've got that in stock. Or they've had this referral for chest x-ray. They need it reissued to that hospital because they're seeing people there. Or Like, it's just so messy you know oh they've they've um, been seen at this hospital before but their partner's being seen here and they're really really worried about this thing and can they join up these two visits and and humans are really really good at solving that mess um there are problems that that are very hard to structure for you know computers and logic to understand humans are exceptionally good at solving them but to solve them they need to be able to communicate and so you know how do they do that before it was like on the phone or by post or maybe by email if they were like feeling really sort of technologically advanced or by patients having to repeat themselves you know to each person they see and things like that and so i'd say any other industry where that either where like the main value add is in communication or where there's just a, a sort of incredible like an infinitely long ta- long tail of uses i'd say that could be the signs that it might be at its root you know communication is where the value is added and where the challenges are is that why you keep your product unstructured yeah so we we, we're quite intentional we're very intentional and have a product principle um, of being generic so we don't want to build a workflow for um, referrals or for prescription requests we want to build a workflow for getting a message from a GP practice to another provider or um, for a patient getting in touch with their GP practice and then let people innovate. And that, that's part one of the reasons, the two reasons we believe in being really generic is one, there's this messy long tail, but two, when you're generic and unstructured, then people can innovate. If they're, if you're completely structured, like all this lets you do is book appointments, all people can do with it is book appointments. And so that's where you know we draw the comparison to something like Microsoft Excel, where you can you can build all sorts in there, and it's never as good as the like purpose built, you know, the inventory management system or the the financial modeling software or whatever. But actually, it's so much more flexible, and you you can, you can innovate with it. So now, over time, you do get to specific things where actually, this is such a key use case that to make it more efficient and safer or to make that use case discoverable because the one problem with being really generic is people can innovate but then how do you spread that innovation to others then you sometimes need to build use cases into it but i would say that should always be secondary to like the core product working really well i don't for us we don't want to get to product market fit by building around specific use cases we want to get to product market fit with something generic and then you know give you another 10x efficiency by having by supporting specific use cases and that to be more the exception than the norm as well if you had to articulate the most ambitious version of accurx what would that be so the most ambitious version is really where we want to get to which is the communication record so all the communication that happens with a patient and about a patient subsumes the medical record as we know it today so all this information of what they were prescribed or what referrals were made. It's assumed in this communication record because that's most of what's happening in healthcare is communication. And that is ubiquitous in each health system. So it's the way that different organizations communicate with each other. It's the way that patients communicate with the system. It's ultimately a platform that others can build more value on top of us that, that we can create ourselves so that particularly when you get to specific disease areas for example people can come and build you know life-changing solutions for managing type 1 diabetes or managing cystic fibrosis or whatever it is that that no one company is going to build all of those things but none of those companies should also have to build all this infrastructure to start with and that's you know a lot of what we're going to provide so i'd say those are some like different parts of where we want to get to you didn't want to be a doctor because you wanted to optimize for impact. And, and now your tech is, is helping millions, I'd say. How does it feel, personally? Like, in, in, in some sense, it, it feels very rewarding, um, you know, to be ubiquitous across certainly general practice at the moment. The 
<laughs> I'd say I've got like two overriding feelings and one is just like an immense sense of privilege, particularly to work with the team I get to work with and, and, and the users as well that we get to work with, but you know, particularly the team that you know, really, really care about these problems and give them their all. And then the second feeling is is very much one of like we're just getting started. So yeah, it's you know, it feels cool. We grew lots during COVID and we've, you know, doing quarter of a million patient contacts a day and all these all these different things. But the reality of it is like that's a you know a, a fraction of a percentage of our vision and we've got such a long way to go. Um, and maybe this goes with the, you know, not being great at celebrating things, but we're we're quite heads down on like what we what we want to achieve over the next year so yeah that second feeling is really one of just just getting started i think that's a perfect note to end on thank you so much for your time jacob it's been great thanks a lot guns i've really enjoyed it hey this is guns again if you enjoyed this episode of the CTO podcast please let me know by leaving an honest review if you want to get more good stuff from me subscribe to seedtable.com seedtable is a weekly newsletter on european technology it goes out every friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders investors and operators that's all for today thanks so much for listening and see you next time ciao